welcome to another episode of Girls Gone Canon, episode 26, Sansa in a Clash of Kings, chapter 6. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor on Tumblr and Twitter. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you can find me on the internet as Glass Table Girl on the Mason Monthly Podcast and on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and as Arithmetric on Twitter. Welcome! Patrons, guess what? Your stickers are on the way. Some of you have gotten them already, and um, thank you so much for taking pictures of them and being happy about them. It makes me really happy. Yeah, we were really excited to just have a treat for those patrons that signed on for $10 and up the tiers before September 1st when we launched our patron. We uh, we have a lot of cool kind of stretch goals we're going to implement at some point, and uh just some really some more fun stuff coming to you guys, not just what's on the tiers and what's in the description. So thanks so much for being our patron. Patrons that are $5 and up, make sure you check out our episode we just released last week. Every day is Halloween about disguise and identity in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, even though it's no longer October, uh, there's definitely a lot there that is always relevant to the storyline. I mean, every day is Halloween. So Exactly. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. Halloween. It's in its title. It's in its title. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Great. Yeah. So we're here at Sansa 6. As you'll notice, we've only said one chapter for this week. It's a special surprise. No. Okay. We're probably not going to do a 10 year long episode for the Blackwater. At least not right now. Maybe in the future. We could have. I do strongly believe we could have done a 10-hour episode. I, I was planning it out. I was like, Chloe, if we did it like this, I think we could stretch it out to 10 hours. I mean, we still could. We could. The problem is it would have to be 10 consecutive hours. Yeah. You're, you're like, yeah, what's the problem? <laughs> this would take like three weeks to edit. Oh, I just figured we weren't going to. <laughs> I mean, we're going to be like Cersei. In this chapter, you know, hashtag unedited. Yeah, absolutely. No filter. Hashtag no filter. Hashtag the real world. <laughs> yeah, I think for now, uh, we will at least be examining these chapters on their own, solo. Get really into those nitty gritty details and talk about some of the stuff that we just uh, usually glaze over. Exactly. So, um, before we dive into that, we're going to talk about some of the things that you all have said. Yeah, we got a great tweet from Third Eye Crow at Heisenberg's Goat on Twitter. Uh, always a fan of their tweets at us. And I am really enjoying these Sansa chapters from solid analysis to whimsical and hilarious character impressions. I feel Chloe and Eliana really give us great insight into the character's psyche and motivations and the social constructs shaped this worldview added. I'll admit that before listening to Radio Westeros' episode on Sansa, I had no idea the depth and beauty, not just physical, of Sansa and also her strengths. Sure, she has her weaknesses, as we all do, but I think men, in general, not specific, overlook the fact she is a young girl being manipulated by all around her on her first read. Personally, I was guilty of this bias, and it wasn't until I sought out the views of eminently more enlightened folk that my views changed rapidly. That's the great thing about this fandom, is there's always something to learn, which will only enhance your appreciation of great works. Great job, Girls Gone Canon, for continuing to shine a light on Sansa, and I look forward to the week-long live stream for Battle of Blackwater episode. <laughs> Hashtag, it's illegal to hate Sansa. Very true. 
Uh, I thank you, Heisenberg's goat, Third Eye Crow, for your following of the law, the law in this podcast. I enjoy that the law on, like, not a cast is Stannerman, and the law here is, like, it's illegal to hate Sansa Stark, so. It's illegal to hate Sansa Stark. Also, yes, week- I will literally call the cops. Week-long live stream. That's really- (laughs) That's what we're doing here. (laughs) Those might be my favorite parts. Like, that was a great, really nice couple tweets, and- those are probably my favorite parts, though, because I am a child. I'm just a small child. <laughs> uh, just like Sansa, also a small child. Yes. everyone will remember. So thank you so much, Heisenberg's goat. Uh, that made us really happy. <laughs> Chloe needed it. Chloe needed it. I needed it. We are pleased. Thank you so much. Next is... Next is... Um, we got an iTunes review from... Someone named Drinkin' Pretty, which is what we are doing, you know, in preparation for this episode. Wine Mom episode. Wine Mom episode. (laughs) (laughs) The title of this iTunes review is My Favorite Thing Ever, which is like, that's a lot to say. Ever. Heavy as the crown. Wow. I know, right? Hollow crowns and what is it? Anyways, they said, I love Girls Gone Kitten. They provide insightful analysis of each character. Amazing catchphrases, it's illegal to hate Sansa, and fun banter. My boyfriend has literally had to come check on me because I was laughing so hard in the other room. Give them a listen. Wow, with great power comes great responsibility, am I right? Truly. This is now a Spider-Man podcast. (laughs) We've got got a There's a redhead. Oh my god, Sansa Stark is Mary Jane Watson, and here's ten reasons why. Oh my gosh. Well, this is definitely the wine mom episode. I'm excited. I am situated with my wine. I think Eliana's drinking something else. I'm drinking bourbon as I tend to do because it's autumn and I can mix this easily into the apple cider I'm going to heat up and uh, mix with the bourbon. Well, that sounds really good. I, I, I Very seasonal. Very autumnal. I, I personally went with a nice deep Merlot. From a box. Merlot? Yes, but uh, it's not actually what Cersei drinks in this episode. She drinks an Arbor Gold. We will go past that. You know, lies. Of course, we will jump into a very short lightning round of what we missed. There's not a lot, finally, between the chapters. As we talked about last episode, Sansa's chapters are really building up toward the end of this book. They're really, you know, escalating toward the Blackwater, the big event. The first chapter between the last Sansa chapter, Sansa 5 and Sansa 6, is Davos 3. The Battle of the Blackwater begins as Davos Seaworth sets sail into the mouth of the bay. Within the water's deadly maws, what seemed to be a strong naval battle devolves into hell as the imp's wildfire consumes Stannis' men. There's a lot in this that harkens into those Barristan chapters that we read. Oh, absolutely. War is hell. I totally like didn't even think of that anyways everything's hell yeah pretty much Tyrion 13 it is like dragon fire Tyrion thinks looking out upon the inferno he's created destroying both fleets time to lead the sortie but the man who was supposed to lead it is no longer up to the task the hound's own personal demons have come out to play leaving Tyrion to take the lead okay what I just highlighted off the record and maybe I'll just leave it in, whatever. Do you think it's like Dragonfire, Tyrion thinks, looking out upon the inferno he created? Is that just, like, future foreshadowing? I do think it is, because, like, I mean, it's 
it is like Dragonfire is literally a quote from that uh, chapter because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to skim these because we definitely need the context, right, for to be able to talk about the, the Blackwater. And I do think there's something in there that's definitely foreshadowing. When you get to Tyrion's chapters eventually, it's going to be extremely interesting, huh, to kind of dig back into that. I, I hmm. In like four years? Yeah, like in 12 <laughs> years when we do Tyrion chapters. Yeah, right next to when we do... It's close to when we do the Danny chapters, right? So it'll be... Right before the Winds of Winter comes out. <sighs> in Sansa Stark 6, as the battle outside rages, the Queen's ballroom is full of a false sense of calm. The gentry folk in struggle to maintain a sense of peace while the fate of King's Landing tips back and forth. Sansa sits at the foot of Cersei Lannister, drunkenly dispensing wisdom in her own very weird way. And so we open up Sansa 6, Clash of Kings, with Illin Payne standing over the room. He doesn't eat or drink. He just waits. Totally foreboding. Totally foreboding. It's some weird fire white shit, but like, I mean, he's alive. Illin Payne's Azora High? <laughs> oh, shit. Illin Payne is the song of Ice and Fire. The He's carrying song. ice right now. Yeah, and the fire... Was when they lit his tongue area on fire to, um, what's the word when you cauterize the wound? Yeah. Yep. yep. It's lit. All right. <laughs> Rip. All right. Rip. The Queen's Ballroom is a light from the metal sconces. There's still a ton of darkness, and Sansa finds that within Lord Giles Rosby's cough, which, why is he there? It's, I thought this was girls only, so get out. And of course, from Osney Kettleblack's later whispers to the Queen. Yeah, uh, Giles Rosby, get out. Also, there's some great juxtaposition here uh, in terms of how this entire scene is framed with that silvery light contrasting with that green hellfire that we have going on outside uh, in the battle that you just saw in those last two chapters. And then, of course, that the darkness in everything doesn't come necessarily from it being nighttime outside. It's so bright that the darkness comes from the people. It's mm. what's in our hearts. And it also continues to open the chapter with a lot of those descriptions of sound. Uh, same as in Sansa's previous chapter. And it's really driving home that idea of like different voices in this part of the song of ice and fire. Because we're going to see kind of like a duet between Tyrion and Sansa's chapters. Which we're not doing right now because we're in, turns out, not actually doing a 10-hour Blackwater episode. Polluted by Davos. So... Sansa sips broth as uh, Osney enters from the back of the room and he speaks to his brother Osfried. I don't know the difference between these people. It's almost like, so Osney has, okay, so let's just recount the ones we know. There's Osmond, Osney, Osfrid, and there's Oswell. So this isn't the place I'm going to talk about this, but we will get into this eventually, probably sometime in Storm, where we talk about the Kettle Black theories because there are so many different kettleback theories. Because Sansa, in a minute, we'll see, thinks, like, these guys came out of nowhere. And everyone feels that way, right? But so, Osney tends to be kind of the more ringleader. Especially as we go forth into a feast for crows, eventually. Osney is kind of the leader of the three brothers. I'm so glad that you're here, because I've never really bothered to... Think about that. Keep track. Yeah. I know. Uh, one of them, I guess Osney, turns to talk to the queen... And then Sansa overhears a conversation, which turns out the fleet is locked in battle. 
And how does destroying archers on the shore? Tyrion is raising the chain he created, and drunkards are starting to riot and loot in Flea Bottom. Baylor's Sept is completely packed, everybody is in there praying, and Joffrey is walking Baylor's steps with Tyrion, boosting the morale of the armies. I'm sure he is. Yeah, I'm sure. And while Tyrion's chapters give us a lot of the action, like, there on the ground of the Blackwater, Sansa's chapters give us a more expansive view of the city. Not only is there a battle raging between Stannis' men and the Lannisters, there's also a lot of that class divide that permeates the entire city where the lowborn folk are the ones who are most at risk. And then this idea of Cersei, you know, asking, like, what's up with my son? She, specifically the line is Cersei saying, like, in my son, when she's checking in on the status. It reminds me of Dord Martell in The Winds of Winter, Arian 1, where he goes, where are the dragons, he asked. Where's Daenerys? And Arian knew that he was really saying, where's my son? Yeah, in her own uh, overtly maternal way, she was definitely doing very similar. Cersei calls for a glass of Arbor Gold from her page, and she's drinking quite heavily, as one does when war is afoot. Her cheeks are flushed, and Sansa thinks that she looks beautiful, but she also thinks she has the eyes of wildfire. We see this repeated later on in the burning of the Tower of the Hand, and Jamie, of course, observes Cersei in the following quote. He thinks, let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat, Jamie remembered, studying his sister's smile. Let him be king of ashes, and he sees that in his sister. And in these moments, Cersei... Be- starts to transform as a character. We see her becoming more aligned with this idea of fire as opposed to being that ice queen that she's portrayed as in the first book. And we also kind of see her coming into her own in her own very strange way with Robert no longer in the picture, which is kind of what we see for Sansa later on in the story when she finally escapes Joffrey and his abuse. Though you can also see that in many ways Cersei's projecting a lot of herself onto Sansa throughout this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. We saw it last chapter as well when you look at her saying, you know, like, oh, Joffrey will never give you such adoration or love. Moonboy and Ser Dantos entertain the crowds and they try to keep spirits up. There are musicians that are musicking and jugglers that are juggling. The guests laughed, but it was a joyless laughter, the sort of laughter that can turn into sobbing in half a heartbeat. Their bodies are here, but their thoughts are on the city walls and their hearts as well. And that idea of laughter turning into sobbing is so much of what we see in A Song of Ice and Fire with that idea of like, if ice can burn, love and hate can mate, and like opposites just kind of becoming the same as one another. Yeah, I I guess like the most prominent one I can think of is Cat 7 in Storm when they're at the Red Wedding with, that made her laugh until she screamed. I too am screaming and crying. Why would you remind me of this? (laughs) In this moment. Sansa thinks that the food would be great any other night, but tonight, it tastes like fear. It's laced with fear tonight. And they had broth, salad with apples, and uh, nuts and raisins, and I think this is the one, Mm -hmm. the salad. There's a salad that you can find that's called Sansa Salad in A Feast of Ice and Fire, which you should consider picking up this Thanksgiving-slash-holiday season and cooking some of the recipes for all of your friends and loved ones. I really need it, honestly. I I can't believe I don't have it. Lord Giles is, again, coughing more than he's eating. How does that man swallow anything? And Lawless Stockworth is over here sitting and shivering, while one of Lancel's men's 
Brides is weeping is weeping uncontrollably. Then Cersei commands Maester Franken to put her to bed with Dreamwine. Who the hell is Maester Franken? Um, he is the Stokeworth Maester, and it's the Maester that tracks Sansa out after the riots. Yep. Tears, she said scornfully to Sansa as the woman was led from the hall. The woman's weapon, my mother used to call them. The man's weapon is a sword, and that tells us all you need to know, doesn't it? Men must be very brave, though, said Sansa, to ride out and face swords and axes, everyone trying to kill you. Jamie told me once that he only feels truly alive in battle and in bed. She lifted her cup and took a long swallow. Her salad was untouched. I would sooner face any number of swords than sit helpless like this, pretending to enjoy the company of this flock of frightened hens. A. Eat your fucking salad, Cersei. B. So much of this book is building on stuff that was set up in A Game of Thrones, like Crescent's poison in that first prologue to Cersei being like, love is a poison. And then finally here we have Cersei talking about tears as a woman's weapon, which... The last time we heard that was Pycelle, I believe, talking to Ned. And while it might seem like it's po- pointing to Cersei, especially because she's the one saying it this time, as John Aaron's poisoner, it's all actually slowly building up to that reveal of Liza as the ultimate culprit, slowly poisoned by herself, or slowly poisoned herself by her love for Peter until, you know, she dies. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, all Alyssa's tears. Mm. I mean, there's just so many, like we said in those Ned chapters, so many things leading to it. It's practically screaming in your face, all of these books, until you get it at the end of Storm. Which, like, it isn't screaming in your face, right? Like, unless, until you get it. Does that make yeah. sense? Like, it was hiding yeah. in plain sight this whole time. Exactly. Exactly. Sansa is extremely taken aback because the queen asked these people to be here and Cersei explains she didn't want to ask them. It was her duty as queen. This chapter is finally deconstructing Sansa's viewpoint on Cersei as a queen and really breaking down that she's not who Sansa wants to be. We've had minimal Cersei actions in this book so far with Sansa because she's been really busy with different political duties as we read in Tyrion's chapters and Joffrey, of course, has been busy torturing Sansa. Certain things are expected of a queen. They will be expected of you, should you ever wed Joffrey. Best learn. The queen studied the wives, daughters, and mothers who filled the benches. Of themselves, the hens are nothing, but their cocks are important for one reason or another, and some may survive this battle, so it behooves me to give their woman my protection. If my wretched dwarf of a brother should somehow manage to prevail— They'll return to their husbands and fathers full of tales about how brave I was, how my courage inspired them and lifted their spirits, how I never doubted our victory, even for a moment. Ch-ch-ch-jaded. Oh, is that not right? No, it's no, not. I don't it's know. Nope. I'm sorry. Everything about Cersei's trajectory, though, up to this point is perfect. And those last two lines, like those last lines of like, those tales of bravery and courage. It sounds, it's the same sort of language, right? As like the sorts of, the, the way that people tell tales of the men fighting on the battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. It's the narrative that gets spun, victory, or history written by the victors, of course. So if they win, it turns into that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sansa then asks, what happens if the castle falls? Cersei says they may be able to hold for a while. 
in Magor's as long as none of the guards betray her. And that if she can, she's going to go yield to Stannis and she's going to work out some terms. But Cersei tells her that if the guards do betray her, it kind of means like a lot of bloodlust for the men. And then everyone who's in there is in for a bit of a rape. He's in for it. He is in for a bit of a sodomy. Including, uh, is Giles Rosby? Like, yeah. I guess, probably. I mean, I guess that's the whole point, right? It's um about violence and assertion of power. Yep. Sansa's horrified, and she's... Because, like, Cersei here, she's talking about these well-born ladies. How could they also be in for rape? Cersei says that their breath protects them to a certain degree, but um, after nights of blooding swords, men want to fuck more than they want money. True, they're so stupid. <laughs> this reminds me a lot of the paper shield that Ned has in A Game of Thrones, right? When Cersei rips it and says, like, was that your shield? It reinforces this idea of men being without honor, right? Are there no true knights among you? And of course, in the last sack of King's Landing, it, it was famously bad, right? It was not good. It's silly to think this one could be any better, especially considering Stannis' new religious alignment, although he's not really as much of a worshiper as his whole entire court and, you know, his mistress, that everything would be on fire, right? Just like looking around, everything on fire, which of course it already is. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing, and, like, the language in this scene just really drives that home, because, like, the way that Cersei describes it, she says, even so, a golden shield is better than none, which, again, draws that comparison, like you said, to that paper shield. And it's, of course, on top of the fact that, like, throughout Sansa's chapters, we get that idea of courtesy being a lady's armor. But throughout the chapter, we also see that Cersei's not longing for a shield, she wants a sword, she doesn't want to be defending. But I have a question. So you were talking about how, like... The sack of King's Landing went famously horrible, right? It was it was really bad, but of course, the leader of all that was Tywin Lannister. Do you think that a sack led by Stannis Baratheon, who is known to be much more strict about the rules to send rapists, etc., to the Wall and to punish them, do you think that 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 um, a sack by Stannis's troops would have been at least a little better than? won by the Lannister forces. I think it would be a bit more humane, but at the same time, you're looking at, he's attacking with what? His whole armies, everybody on board that has kind of come back from Renly. So we're looking at what, 60K, something around there. I think that he wouldn't be able to control all of it. And I don't know necessarily as much as, like, I always thought when I read this, it was interesting that Cersei felt they were in for a bit of a rape, you know, like that she was like, oh yeah, we're all fucked. I think that maybe not so much that, but I think violence, and I think because of the, Lannis the Lannister regime, I think because of what they'd done, because Stannis is a just man, that Stannis wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't say no to some of the violence. He wouldn't exactly stop them because they're all Lannisters in his eyes. You know, all of them. Look at how he calls Sansa's claim. He's like, I've heard enough of Lady Lannister. Uh he doesn't see black and white when it comes to Lannisters, but I do think that he would be able to control the uh, the raping bits a little better. But the violence, I think the violence and the burnings would end up too wild, out of control. I don't think he'd have control after a while. There's just so many people. I think what you've pointed out just now of how Stannis, you know, as you said, doesn't see in like maybe shades of gray when it comes to the Lannisters, like, and as you said, calls Sansa Lady Lannister. It kind of reminds me of maybe Stannis feels the way towards the Lannisters, the way that Robert felt towards the Targaryens. Oh, of course. And you're looking at the Lannisters took Robert away, too, from Stannis, in a way. You know, I mean, that's mm. 
they took his brother away. They took the king away. They're, they've committed the ultimate treason in his eyes. That's true. Wow, look, we've just talked about Stannis. Well, we knew we were going to get to it eventually. <laughs> we were going to get to it eventually. That's true. Like, especially when we get to the Davos chapters, it was like, wow, look at us having a discussion about Stannis. I think we'll bring some nuance for sure. <laughs> Hashtag subtle nuance. Cersei says servants and women on the streets are not going to be treated as gently. Pretty things like that serving wench of Lady Tanda's could be in for a lively night, but don't imagine the old and the infirm and the ugly will be spared. Enough drink will make blind washerwomen and reeking pig girls seem as comely as you, sweetling. Which, of course, that is a shout-out to Shay. Cersei has no clue that that's Tyrion's girl. She thinks, of course, that Tyrion uh, had a different working woman in his life. So I think that's interesting. And I also think it's interesting that she references... Reeking pig girls. Uh, it reminds me of two things. It reminds me of Pate the pig boy. And it also reminds me of Reek in that sentence, especially because he lays with the dogs. I thought you were going to say Penny. And Penny. Yeah. Is the other one. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You you know, we're tying it to like, of course, Tyrion's people associated with Tyrion. No, I don't think about Tyrion. Fuck him. Oh, okay. Fuck um, Lannister. Fuck a Lannister, dog. Fuck him. Lady Fuck him. La- Lady Lannister. Fuck a Lannister. Fuck a Lannister. <laughs> You're truly being Stannis of the right now. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. Cersei's really playing this whole thing down. She's just like, oh yeah, it's a lively night. And Sansa, of course, she sees uh, she sees through that. She's further horrified. And then Cersei's like, yeah, of course, your vag is totally blooming, and these sick fucks love blood. They don't care. <laughs> You're a super sexy kid. Life sucks. Right? Like, she's straight up and she's like, You're a hot piece of ass, Sansa. Like, now that you're 12, it's time you understand that. Like, people want to fuck you. And Sansa's like, This is not fun for me. None of this is fun for me. Is this fun for anyone? <laughs> My first war sucks. Yeah, I also am just like, why? What? What? I just like don't think, I don't know. I think my favorite part, we're going to come to it in a minute, but it's when Cersei like says no to wide and she's like, I need a clear head. And I'm like, um, you should have stopped a few glasses ago, Cersei, a couple bottles ago. And you should have stopped a few glasses ago. B, you should have eaten your salad. Get more food in there to absorb all the alcohol. You know, eat your, eat your goddamn salad, girl. Where's your bread bowl, bitch? Yeah, drink some water. So, anyway, were it anyone else outside the gates, I might hope to beguile him, but this is Stannis Baratheon. I'd have a better chance of seducing his horse. She noticed the look on Sansa's face and laughed. Have I shocked you, my lady? She leaned close. You little fool. Tears are not a woman's only weapon. You've got another one between your legs, and you'd best learn to use it. You'll find men use their swords freely enough. Both kinds of swords. It's not a secret that Stannis is not easily swayed by women, as we talked back with Stannis visiting the brothel and the surprise everybody had. And there's two quotes, one from Eddard Six in A Game of Thrones with Renly, where he says, We're fortunate my brother Stannis is not with us. Remember the time he proposed to outlaw brothels? The king asked him if perhaps he'd like to outlaw eating, shitting, and breathing while he was at it. If truth be told, I oft time wonder how Stannis ever got that ugly daughter of his. He goes to his marriage bed like a man marching to a battlefield with a grim look in his eyes and a determination to do his duty. 
And then there's also the quote in uh, the prologue of A Clash of Kings, where Stannis talks about how his wife has a new faith, the Red Lord, and there was no affection in his tone. Stannis had always been uncomfortable around women, even his own wife. When he had gone to King's Landing to sit on Robert's council, he had left Solice on Dragonstone with their daughter. His letters had been few, his visits fewer. He did his duty in the marriage bed once or twice a year, but took no joy in it, and the sons he had once hoped for had never come. Of course, they were busy being in the test tubes on HBO. Yeah, I mean, shit's hard. Canon. <laughs> Girl's gone. It's this quote that you have of Stannis going to his marriage bed, like a man marching to a battlefield, is interesting in the context of this entire chapter, because Cersei, you've just tied it to what Cersei is saying about men using their own swords, right? And she's talking about the vagina. <laughs> Also being a woman's weapon. Oh, I get it. It's a sexual joke. It's all. This entire book, everything's a sex joke when you're 13. Um, but yeah, I, there's there's a tie in there. There's a thread. Uh, saved by the bell. Well, the kettles at least. Two of the kettle blacks come in. It's Osmond and one other one. Honestly, do not know which other one. Chloe, do you know? They don't even say. They literally don't say. It's just Osmond and that other one. You can literally just fill throw one in there and be like, maybe it's this one. It was more than likely that one. Or maybe it's both at the same time. Is it Schrodinger's kettle black, right? And at any given <laughs> time, it's one of the other kettle blacks. It is. Schrodinger's kettle black. Yeah, at any given time, when you open the lid, which one is it? The kettle blacks are new in town, and Sansa just really doesn't like the stench of them, because, I don't know, everyone's stinky, I guess, in this entire book series. They show up out of nowhere, and they make japes, and they try to get along with everyone out of nowhere. And... Who is she? Who is she? <laughs> she hears a washwoman say, though, that the kettle blacks are younger and stronger and faster. They are harder, faster, stronger than the hound, and Sansa's all like, mm, okay... Okay. Yeah, I, I don't believe you, but okay. Okay. Like, same, too. Like, what? Okay. No one yeah. is, like, no one could withstand the hound. Come on, except Gregor, and that's one time. I find it interesting that Sansa can highlight Sandor's inappropriate behavior toward her, his drunk, hungry eyes, his sharp words and actions, but she does recognize that he's better than the Kingsguard she generally gets stuck with, which really says a lot. There are a lot of grumblings here, too, of the Kettleblacks rising out of nothing to replace Sandor, and that whole younger guy doing the job for less money and perks kind of thing, right? Like, in with the new, out with the old. Even more interesting is the way that the Kettleblacks are physically described. They're described as dark hair, tall, hooked noses, just like Sandor. Later on in the story, in Jamie chapters, that I will be excited, honestly, to get to this. Osmond claims to Jamie he was knighted by Sir, a guy named Sir Robert Stone, which also draws a connection with the veil for Sansa in her future time as Elaine Stone. Oh. Yeah, see, Eliana? That's see? good. I've never noticed that. The Kettle Blacks, whom many people for a long time, of course, thought said Kettleback instead of Kettle Blacks. There's a whole, like, if you go back far enough in Twitter, there's a whole series of parodies in which Emmett and I exchanged and made lyrics to Sexy Back. I'm bringing Kettle Black. Yeah, it's there somewhere. I don't know. I don't know what we even said. Um, but it is Kettle Black, a play, of course, on the pot calling the Kettle Black. And Osney's over here and he 
I guess it's Osni. Osni came in, right? With Osmond. It must be. There we go. He tells Cersei that the wildfire is everywhere and hundreds of ships are burning. And Cersei inquires about Joffrey again. Joffrey's at the Mud Gate with Tyrion and the Kingsguard members. Osni tells Cersei that everyone has agreed that Joffrey's like a right brave boy. And he taught everyone how to properly hold a crossbow. Yeah, which I'm sure all the soldiers that have been doing this for shitty kings for years and years were very appreciative of his demonstration on the crossbow, right? Like, Joffrey is the worst boss. This is literally a startup company, and he is the worst. I agree. <laughs> I love this comparison. Um, yeah, they're all just holding this crossbow, and they're all like, can I just drive it into this fucking shit bag? Cersei is insistent on Joffrey's living status remaining at alive. <laughs> and then Osfried, oh, we got it. We're, they're, we've collected all of them. Osfried shows up because why not? And tells her that a groom and two maidservants were caught escaping from the king's, with the king's horses. And all the king's men? Yeah. Couldn't put Osfried back together again? All right, so wine mom time. The knight's first traitors, the queen said. But not the last, I fear. Have Sir Illyn see to them and put their heads on pikes outside the stables as a warning. As they left, she turned to Sansa. Another lesson you should learn if you hope to sit beside my son. Be gentle on a night like this and you'll have treasons popping up all about you like mushrooms after a hard rain. The only way to keep your people loyal is to make certain they fear you more than they do the enemy. I will remember your grace said Sansa, though she had always heard that love was a surer route to the people's loyalty than fear. If I am ever a queen, I'll make them love me. Lots of notes here, really excited to just jump on in, but first I wanted to say, Cer Cersei just like sent Illyn off to murder those people, like right now. Like she was just like, okay, well, Illyn, go take care of it. And he just goes out and kills these people, like, uh. So, I digress. In history, there aren't a ton of good queens that we hear about, right? There's Nymeria, who's referred to as a fierce witch warrior queen. And of course, there's good queen Alysanne. But otherwise, there aren't a lot of female figures besides John Quill and Nerys. George just put out a great excerpt a month or so ago about Jaehaerys I and Alysanne from Fire and Blood, part one, or volume one, I should say. And it contained Alysanne doing a lot of Sansa-y things, and we're seeing them right here during Blackwater. Like Alysanne holding a woman's court where she listens to 200 women's problems and lives, and where she charms a very prickly Lord of the North, Alaric Stark, who was pretty sour toward her. Alysanne goes to the Night's Watch and eats of their bread and ale and decides they must give the gift to the Night's Watch for their bravery. Of course, the gift was emptied out over time, over the last years, and needs to be resettled to create a new thriving economy, something that Ned Stark wanted more than anything to do and didn't get to do, and something that Sansa and Jon are definitely going to end up doing before the end of the story. I could, like, count, like, $100 million on it. Like, that's what's going to happen, like, right now. I'm betting it. I'm betting you it. Sansa's parallels with Alysanne don't stop there. I'm sure we're going to get a lot more parallels out of Fire Blood. Coming out later this month, which I'm super excited for. I know we are going to the Jersey City event where George is speaking with a ton of our other buddies from uh, different podcasts and from the community. So if you're going to that, let us know. We would love to meet up. I'm so excited. We're going to give George a Girls Gone Cannon sticker. It's going to be He has sick. to get it. He, we have to give George the Bell Lost Deserve Better sticker. Yeah. 
I have no idea we're how gonna. we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it. We're going to climb through the oh sewers, pop up on the other side of the stage. Um, yes, yes. To, to everything you said, I'm I'm excited for all of those chapters. Oh, yeah. We zoom back to the food, which is, of course, my favorite part. One of the most important things. They're having crab claw pies, which sound really great. But, like, crab is good and lobster is good. It's just, like, getting the meat out of the shell. It's like, is it worth it? Anyways, mutton with roasted leeks and carrots in, like, Panera bread bowls, right? It sounds I, I so good. I would eat the hell out of mutton Panera, Panera bread bowls. Panera bread bowl. Anyways, Lawless eats too fast and she pukes everywhere, probably because she's pregnant. She's pregnant. She's definitely pregnant. With Babby. Uh, <laughs> with a Babby. And then Lord Giles eats and then he drinks and then he coughs and then he drinks and coughs he coughs a lot. And then he passes out with his face in his bread bowl and his hand in a pool of wine, which supposedly, from what I've heard from TV shows where kids get bullied, will make you piss yourself. Amazing. Cersei is disgusted that... Uh, she took the time to get Giles free because he's a gross old man. Mood. It's interesting that Cersei condemns Felice Stokeworth later after she saved Giles Rosby because they are related. She can't just cut ties easily with the Stokeworths and with the Rosbys, though, because as annoying and bland as they are, they're two of the most fertile, untouched lands during the war in the Crownlands region, and they've always done their duty to the crown, depending on who's there. With House Tyrell beginning to cut off food supply to King's Landing, the city is relying on those kind of lands right now. We get this from Tyrion in Tyrion 4, A Clash of Kings, that his porridge was too thick, Tyrion felt, and wanted butter and honey. To be sure, butter and honey were seldom seen in King's Landing of late, though Lord Giles kept them well supplied in the castle. Half the food they ate these days came from his lands or Lady Tanda's. Rosby and Stokeworth lay near the city to the north and were yet untouched by war. We also see fertility of their stock and crops when Littlefinger is boasting to Ned about the feast he was having at Lady Tanda's in A Game of Thrones. I'm sorry, I'm just like really confused. I got stuck on this part where Tyrion's like, the porridge is too thick and therefore we should add butter and honey. I'm like, that's not going to make your porridge any less thick. What you got to add is some water. You need some milk, like add some milk, dipshit. Or milk or like broth. I don't know what kind of porridge this is. This is, Tyrion is not a cook anyway. Yeah, he's not. Osfried returns and he informs people, uh, he informs Cersei that people are hoping to take refuge in the castle. And Cersei's like, mm, we're not opening those gates for those people. We're not opening the gates for anyone. And commands Osfried to have the people return to their homes. And if they don't listen, we're going to take the crossbowmen and we're going to just kill some of them. Because, you know, fuck the small folk, I guess, right? It harkens back to that idea that people are just Cersei's playthings. We see later with Felice Stokeworth that, again, play things, as we've seen with Jane Poole. Just take care of it. Just get rid of it. For sure. And you can definitely see that thread of where Joffrey gets his disdain for the lower classes from, like, his domestic violence streak is something that he got from Robert. But Joffrey here, like, a few chapters ago, right before the Blackwater is all bragging about how, yeah, I was shooting crossbows at these people at the gate. Look at me, I'm killing all these poor people on the other side of the gate. And turns out Cersei and probably Tywin are all about that. And seeing that this is how a lot of the nobility treats their small folk, in my opinion, makes the fact that 
Edmure Tully opens the gates to his people that much more that much more noble like not just in terms of having lots of money but like actually honorable that's my son that is my son chloe's over here she's got she's, she's, she's got all these like <laughs> devil's horns it's rocking out she's like edmure tully ah <laughs> he's my son <laughs> i don't even care edmure tully is my son yes. he, when he says like my people they were afraid that is a true Man, right there. I agree. Yeah, Edmir, baby. My people, they were afraid. <sighs> he sees them. It's, he sees them as like on par with himself. He's like, we need to protect them. Exactly. Every single person's life is worth something, and Edmir Tully knows that. We stand, Edmir Tully. On this we podcast. stand, Edmir Tully, in this house. I, I can't do. wait to deal with. Pe- I do. I love Edmir Tully. Yeah. And honestly, in retrospect, totally off topic. We're gonna get back to the topic, but in retrospect, like. He had no instruction otherwise. Like, he just did what he thought was best. Okay. He did. And also, you know, we're going to come back to the topic eventually. But so while we're here, right? Remember, Edmir Tully gets shit on by the Starks because they're all like, why didn't you do what you're supposed to do? And like, they're projecting all of the blame onto him for like protecting his people, which is what a lord ought to be doing. That is, that is part of the feudal contract. The lord is supposed to protect his people, which the Lannisters are not living up to. They completely violate as they do every other social contract. But in the late, in what is currently for me, the latest, not a cast, like where they talk about Bran and how Rob is projecting onto Theon. Rob is just laying into Theon. They're like, how could you leave Bran alone? Like, why did you do that? Now, like Bran got attacked and all this shit happened. And they're talking about how Rob is projecting onto Theon. It's like a typical Rob move, and and your Tully was doing yeah. the right thing. Rob's just mad because they lost. Yeah, just projecting. Anyway. After dealing with the people that are smaller than Cersei and her eyes, she turns back to Sansa. The queen's face was hard and angry. Would that I could take a sword to their necks myself. Her voice was starting to slur when we were little. Jamie and I were so much alike that even our Lord Father could not tell us apart. Sometimes, as a lark, we would dress in each other's clothes and spend a whole day each as the other. Yet even so, when Jamie was given his first sword, there was none for me. What do I get? I remember asking. We were so much alike, I could never understand why they treated us so differently. Jamie learned to fight with sword and lance and mace, well, I was taught to smile and sing and please. He was heir to Casterly Rock, while well, I was to be sold to some stranger, like a horse to be ridden whenever my new owner liked, beaten whenever he liked, and cast aside in time for a younger filly. Jamie's lot was to be glory and power, while mine was birth and moonblood. But you were queen of all the seven kingdoms. When it comes to swords... A queen is only a woman, after all. Cersei's wine cup was empty. The page moved to fill it again, but she turned it over and shook her head. No more. I must keep a clear head. While we're no Sansa, and we tend to have a lot more exposition than she gets, this passage is important for when we get to feast and we get to read that line that 10,000 of your children perished in my palm, your grace, she thought, slipping a third finger into Mir. 
Whilst you snored, I would lick your sons off my face and fingers one by one, all those pale, sticky princes. You claimed your rights, my lord, but in the darkness, I would eat your heirs. Cersei's marital rape has rotted the insides of her, and it's so sad that it's dissolved her to, like, this shell of a queen, right? She got what she wanted, but she got it with the wrong king and the wrong rule. Yeah, it's absolutely true. There's a lot that's highlighted in here of how Cersei has just felt reduced to an animal and like Sansa beaten whenever the king liked. And there is, though, a part of me that wonders to what extent Cersei would have ever been truly happy or gotten everything she wanted. Like, if, if even the smallest thing went wrong, right, she would have just been like, fuck this. And I think something somewhere would have fallen short, even if she were wed to Rhaegar. It also definitely shows in this passage, you know, this is a great passage, um, that shift in power that a queen held since the time of the dragons. You brought up Queen Alicene earlier, but having that same amount of martial power for women like Alcine and Rhaenyra, and even, like, we see it with Rhaenys and Visenya when Aegon first comes over, meant that being a queen had real power and meaning to it, and I think it still can with the right person like every now and then people draw comparisons between Sansa and Queen Elizabeth the first and like you know believe it or not our own world does not have dragons but there were still women who wielded power and Cersei unfortunately just wants power and as we see later on she doesn't really know what to do once she has it and of course Cersei's little monologue here serves to highlight that inequality in Westeros but also you know Cersei's not trying to make things better for all women she's just like if I can't have power no one can have it in everything. Everyone's coming down with me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some women just want to watch the kingdom burn, right? Oh, yeah. Our last course of food that we get is chef. It's goat cheese and baked apples. And the scent of cinnamon fills the room as Stannis's men land on the shore. These things are kind of paired in the text. And I'm also like, I totally kind of wonder if like this is on purpose, right? Like cinnamon is spicy, mm. fiery, <laughs> relory, big red gum. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just spitballing here. I'm just, I'm just saying spicy stuff. Yes. Like red hot. What's, what's on the other side? Okay, Chloe, like what, what goes on the other side of the ice? Um, if this is spicy, like do we have what? Cold ice cream? Mint. Ice cream. Yeah. Mint, minty fresh. Oh. chocolate chip ice cream so these are the two gums one is the spearmint the other is your fucking big red yes that's exactly one is fireball one is dr mcgillicuddy mint schnapps you know yeah and yeah. is Lightbringer actually icebreaker gum i don't know oh my god or is it like the little like strips they're carrying a ram to the gate and by they i mean stannis's army and Tyrion is leading men to fend them off Joffrey remains with one of the kettle blacks again. Which kettle black? And they're no one knows. They're flinging antler men into the river, which doesn't seem very. You know, in retrospect, that doesn't seem very strategic. Cersei wants Joffrey out of the fighting, though she cannot abide having Joffrey anywhere, even remotely dangerous. And Osney tries to argue that Tyrion told him that Joffrey ought to remain there. Which yes, but Cersei also reminds Osney of his loyalties to the Queen Mother. You know, it does bug me that, yeah, it is a little counterproductive, right? If Joffrey is going to cling to his claim and cling to his throne and he isn't embracing the uh, antlered side of his blood, quote unquote, I mean, he's screwing himself over and flinging antler men into the river does not look good, right? I mean, 
you're just sending him them over. Obviously, they're dead, but you're sending them over dead to the enemy that clings to that antler life to be like, I'm a Baratheon. I have Targaryen blood in me. I'm on the, the throne by rights. Like, give it to me. Yeah. Hashtag symbolism. Yeah. Also, do you think Cersei had banged Ozny already at this point? I think she did. Like, right around here. I think she might have because she was kind of desperate to keep her hold on power after Joffrey's big power move on the Sept of Baylor steps. And he's not exactly allowing her to do whatever she wants anymore. So it gave her a plant in the King's Garden. I think Ozny was definitely first. I don't know. There's nothing that like really points to it to me, but I, that doesn't mean that they didn't. Right. I mean, because in Feast, she discusses they've been banging for a while. So it's mm, like, yeah. how long is a while, Cersei? Yeah. And I don't know if it's necessarily... I mean, part of it, of course, is that she thinks it's keeping power over the Kettle Blacks. But I think part of it is just like, Jamie's been gone for a while. Dinner is finally cleared, and which I'm very happy about because it was making me hungry this entire time. Oh my god, it sounded really good. The salad sounded good? I don't know. Eat your salad, Cersei. Many ask for leave to go to the set to pray as a one last escape from Mager's Holdfast, which I kind of wonder if these people were like, oh, this battle's going south. Like, we should just leave now because we're fucked and we're going to die in this room with the queen, right? Like, if they're suddenly realizing, like, oh, the executioner's just been standing around real awkwardly in the background. Yeah. Maybe they're hoping that the set, like, in... The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, sorry. Uh, that religious building is going to be like sanctuary. Probably not, but the hope is More there. Hellfire. Oh, best Disney song. Fire, fire. Yeah, it's the best song for sure. Uh, it's very Stannis, speaking of. It is. A singer does come forth singing the songs of John Quill and Florian, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, and Nerys, which is very fitting for Sansa, both of them, and even Nymeria and her ships. And because the two, for those first two songs, right, they fit so well, I wonder if that last one about Nymeria and her ships ought to be fitting in somehow in some way, but I just don't know yet how. Here's how. I got you. I got you. If you read the new excerpt from Fire and Blood, you'll know that Alysanne returns to the north and she hits White Harbor, Right. Which Sansa, when she returns to the north, could possibly be hitting White Harbor first with the veil, having troops come up the road after them. And, you know, good Queen Sansa stuff. Indeed. Indeed, I'm hoping. And everyone's sad, and they're weeping softly at the music, and Sansa finds herself a part of this sad times. As Sansa feels her eyes moisten, Cersei patronizes her as she's been doing this whole time, but like also like in Cersei's defense, I'm not going to act like I've never been drunk and tried to quote-unquote dispense wisdom to the younglings. Right. It wasn't good wisdom. Probably not wisdom at all, but I'm not going to act like I've never tried to do that. And Cersei tells Sansa that she should continue to practice those tears for Stannis' arrival, and Sansa feigns understanding and Cersei rolls her eyes. Telling Sansa that she knows about her little treasons in the Godswood, and Sansa's heart stops. The Godswood? Don't look at Sir Dantos. Don't, don't. Sansa told herself she, she doesn't know. No one knows. Pro Dantos promised me my Florian would never fail me. I've done no treasons. I only visit the Godswood to pray. For Stannis or your brother, it's all the same. Why else seek out your father's gods? You're praying for our defeat. What would you call that if not treason? I pray for Joffrey. 
she insisted nervously. And here you can see that our baby girl, she's getting smarter and she's growing up because she knows that there's still a chance for plausible deniability. She's like, no, they can't know about Dantos. So she convinces herself not to look at Dantos, which definitely pays off. Yeah, Cersei then tells her to drink. So Sansa gets away with whatever she thought was happening. And Cersei tells her to drink because it might provide her the courage to deal with the truth about her life. She commands her to drain her cup and it makes Sansa gag, which of course... You wonder where Joffrey gets this from, right? Like, the worst of both worlds. Sad. It's really sad. But also, just like, it's sad, but seeing Joffrey, it's hard to feel bad for him. It is. It is. It almost gagged her, but Sansa emptied the cup, gulping down the thick, sweet wine until her head was swimming. More? Cersei asked. No. Please. So, first off, totally like the Chokey and Matilda, and then like the chocolate cake with Trumbull. Anyways, Super Joffrey, right back to drowning Dantos with wine in the first chapter of A Clash of Kings. Yeah, it's just like, stop making Sansa do keg stands, all right? She doesn't want anymore. Cersei admits she lied to Sansa earlier on when she asked why Illyn Payne was there with the ladies. She beckons for Illyn Payne to come forth, and he does, with ice unsheathed and attached to him, blood drying on the sword. Is this a metaphor? Probably. I, mean, I don't know. Aren't we all? Cersei commands Sir Illyn to tell Sansa why he's with them. Illyn utters a choking noise. <coughs> he's here for us, he says, the queen said. Stannis may take the city and he may take the throne, but I will not suffer him to judge me. I do not mean for him to take us alive. Us? You heard me, so perhaps you had best pray again, Sansa, and for a different outcome. The Starks will have no joy from the fall of House Lannister, I promise you. She reached out and touched Sansa's hair, brushing it lightly away from her neck. <laughs> don't touch Don't touch her. Leave that girl alone. Leave her alone. Get a job, Cersei. Holy shit. <laughs> a lot to unpack, right? I argue that, like, besides Joffrey... Illyn Payne plays a silent antagonist in most of Sansa's chapters. Every moment he's near her in A Game of Thrones, she feels an impending sense of dread and doom. And we find out later she's right to feel this dread as he lops off Eddard's head with ice on the steps of Baylor for everyone to see whether he was under orders or not. That is a very nightmare-inducing thing. And of course, she feels this dread even throughout A Clash of Kings because of watching him do that to Ned. She's reminded every single time she sees him of the tongueless executioner carrying her dead dad's sword. He's a villain, in a way, right for her in her time at King's Landing, and he fills her with intense anxiety. I kind of hope, especially because we know he's in the same area in the Riverlands as where we'll probably see Nymeria and her wolf pack, kind of hope Nymeria eats him, you know, just, just for fun. I know it's like, it's kind of like, no, it's not his fault, in a way, like, this just happened, and he was actually somebody that spoke up against Tywin, and that's why his tongue's gone, but, like, also, I still wouldn't be sad if he got eaten by a wolf. You know? I wouldn't be sad. Yeah, I have complicated feelings about Illyn Payne. Like, I think as the story goes along, it's weird, because, as you said, he definitely was punished by shitty people and has received maybe like an unjust punishment 
but like he's still holding up the shitty system, but also at the same time, like then we see that maybe he's he he becomes like slightly more likable in Feast, but I don't know where yeah. things are going. Maybe maybe he's only maybe it's that George has only made him like more sympathetic and likable, right? To pull that rug under us from out from under us, like when Nymeria and the wolf pack attacks. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise it wouldn't mean anything. It would feel too just. I don't know. Yeah, it's like... I I just feel bad because it's like, you know, he didn't really choose this. He was turned into a monster as well. It's very Sandor-esque, you know. It's very, like, hired sword for the Lannisters-esque. But he had even less of a choice. Like, he's been condemned to this. And it even makes me think of that singer that Joffrey was like, do you want your tongue or do you want your fingers, bitch? Like... yeah. It's just a hard way to live for a mistake, a one mistake in front of a royal. It is. But Illin Payne's not the only villain or gray character in the story. We're going to see a lot of that coming forth, right? In this, in these n- next few Blackwater and Sansa chapters. We have a lot in the next chapter yeah. to uh, get through. There's a lot. I'm looking forward to the next chapter. There's quite a few scenes that I really like. I am. There's okay. There's one scene that I'm particularly looking forward to. Yeah, I think we know what scene I'm most excited for. Oh, of course. I don't think anyone could be as excited for that as for any scene in any of the books as you are for that one. No one would hurt you again or I'd kill them. But I would. Who will protect her from him? (laughs) (laughs) He wouldn't, though. He, he he even she fesses up. He's all like, I didn't even I took the song. She never yeah, anyways. So this was Sansa Six in A Clash of Kings. How's that for a full one chapter episode, you guys? One chapter in depth. Yeah, we're one hour closer to ten. Yeah, we're one hour closer to the ten hours. The uh one hundred seventy-three hour Blackwater episode coming your way. Yep. Just stay tuned. And you can stay tuned to see when those next few episodes come out by subscribing to us on social media. Right? Um, by subscribing to us, I mean, you know, check us out on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon. Or you can hit us up and ask us about when those 10 hour episodes are coming out on email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah. If you have a second and you have a couple extra bucks to throw around, Feel free to log on to our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon for extra content that not everybody gets. Uh, But every week we will be bringing you these episodes for free. Otherwise, you can get them on several platforms. You can get them on Podbean, where we host our podcast, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on Acast, and most recently on Spotify. Hey guys, thanks so much again for listening in. Make sure to listen to episode 27, Sansa, A Clash of Kings 7. Uh, I'm Chloe, one of your hosts. You can find me on the internet as at Lizen Arbor on Twitter and also LizenArbor.tumblr.com. And I'm Eliana, another one of your hosts. And you can find me as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly Podcast and the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. For now. For now. (laughs) Bye, guys.